you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. From the Moon Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. On today's show, a veteran theater critic writes a play about the collapse of journalism. Then, Julia Louis-Dreyfus is a producer of the new movie Downhill, in which she and Will Ferrell play a couple whose marriage is thrown into existential crisis. This movie is certainly about the repression of truth and denial of truth which is, I think, an interesting theme, particularly right now. And we'll meet the Canadian singer-songwriter who's keeping the concept album alive. That's today on The Frame. We'll be right back. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Welcome to The Frame. I'm John Horn. For Valentine's Day weekend, here's an idea. A new movie that might leave you contemplating the meaning of marriage. The film is called Downhill, and it's a dramatic and dark comedy adapted from the Swedish movie Force Majeure. The film stars Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Will Ferrell as a couple whose family is on a European ski vacation. When the resort sets off what's supposed to be a controlled avalanche that threatens them and their kids, each parent's reaction reveals deeper divisions in the marriage. Julia Louis-Dreyfus is also a producer of Downhill. We got together at the Sundance Film Festival a couple of weeks ago where the movie premiered. She said she first discussed the idea of an American remake of Force Majeure with Fox Searchlight back in 2014. Well, I had just finished making this movie Enough Said with them, and we were talking about further projects. And I said, believe it or not, I said, you know, I'm really intrigued by stories in which reality is seen one way and then a lens is taken off and you look at reality a completely different way within the story. And they they said, well, we just came back from con. We saw this movie. You should see this movie because we're trying to uh, get the rights to it. To rebake force majeure. Yeah. So I said, yeah, I'd love to see it. And so they screened it and I was utterly hooked. I remember watching Force Majeure on my laptop and there's a scene in which there's an avalanche and the father, without giving too much weight, doesn't exactly do the right thing. And I remember when I watched it, I backed it up and watched like Zapruder film. I went frame by frame. Like, what does he really do? How does he really react? Yeah. And in the original movie, it's a little vague. In your version, it's not, I guess. Yes. That it's a little more clear in your adaptation. I want to ask you about that moment and in your adaptation, why that was key to amplify that choice. Well... We wanted it to be clear what he did, but 
unclear as to the fallout from it. So in other words, um, the wife in this situation, played by myself, is in utter shock and we wanted to unravel the sweater from that point, from a storytelling point of view. This movie is certainly about the repression of truth and truths and denial of truth, which is, I think, an interesting theme, particularly right now, and denial of facts. Um, but on both ends, because, you know, initially the couple, the, you know, it's a stunning moment. And then rather than a direct confrontation or conversation even about what had happened, they don't have that because I think what happened feels unmentionable because it's so shameful. And so uh, they, they begin, and this is a credit to Jesse Armstrong who did the adaptation, they begin uh, by attacking an outside source, that is to say the safety the mountain safety guy played by uh, Christopher Hivju. And, um, who is the enforce majeure. Who is also enforce majeure and wonderful in that movie as well as in our movie. Here's what I think you're not picking up on. This was a huge event for our family, okay? And, sir, I don't want to make this a legal matter between mm. us. I don't. Billy. No, I don't want to. What I'm saying is yes. what I don't want. We're not in okay? America where you sue because your coffee is hot, madam. Screw you. I'm an attorney. Okay. You've heard our complaint? Yeah, well, yeah. someone needs to hear it. <laughs> thank you for your time. And no thank you for your time from me. <laughs> that is for certain. I thought that was such a great idea to put it away from themselves, put that anxiety and that tension um, onto somebody else before they turn on one another. Pretty cool. We're talking with Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who is the producer and actor in Downhill. I want to ask you about casting, and I want to talk about the kids of the couple, because they're older than in yes. the original film, and that <laughs> changes something, because they understand what's happening in the marriage. The kids in the other movie, I think, are too young to really appreciate it. These kids are older and they know what's happening. And was that written in? Was that just something where you start thinking as a producer, what does it mean if these kids are 12 as opposed to seven? We totally discussed that at great length. I mean, look, both Will and I are old, right? And I'm really old. No, 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 I am. And so, and when we first started doing this, I was like, we got to get this done soon because pretty soon it's going to be implausible for me to have two young children. And in fact, they needed to be young because they had to, you needed to feel as if they were vulnerable in the situation of the avalanche. Uh, had they been in their teens, you might have felt that they were possibly less vulnerable. Not that teenagers can't be vulnerable, but somehow uh, being younger sort of heightens the the the, the sense of danger, I think. Um, and then additionally, we sort of wrote it into the script or pretty subtly implied that we were an older couple who decided to have children late in life. Uh, Will's character refers to fertility treatments that we went through and whether or not it was going to work. So this was a, a sort of a later in life choice for this couple which is sort of an interesting idea too. What about Will? How did you end up casting him? Um, he read the script and he was super interested in it. And I had seen Stranger Than Fiction and was a very big fan of his work in that. I mean, I'm a fan of his work, period. I mean, the guy's a stone cold genius. But he was able in Stranger Than Fiction to embrace 
a, a dramatic tone, and therefore he would be able to sort of tackle this material. And then we met, believe it or not, we'd never met before. Not at some random Hollywood party. Nothing. Not- and our, we have these parallel lives, you know, because of SNL and et cetera, et cetera. But no, we have lots of friends in common, but we'd never met. So we met for this project and we uh, had a sort of long coffee and talked at great, great length about the material. And um, <clears throat> he hadn't seen Force Majeure. He'd only read the script of Downhill. So, and he was like, I really want to do it. And I said, well, before you <laughs> sign on, make sure you really want to do it. Watch the original, you know, and make sure you want to step, put your toe into this water. There's a expression that a friend of mine who works in marketing uses, and it's an overcome. It's like a marketing obstacle that a film has. This is a serious movie about a marriage and it stars people who are generally known for doing comedies. Yeah. Do you think that's an issue in terms of either people come in and thinking it's going to be funny or people who want to see a dramatic film and being unsure of totally. people that think our comedians can do it. Completely. It's been a challenge from a marketing point of view. I mean, the trailer was very uh, intentionally, I, I don't know, if you if you watch the trailer, you'll see that it's not chock full of jokes. Uh, that's by design. It looked like it was going to kill us. For a and moment. The kids were screaming because it felt like we were going to die. Pete? Wow. And I look over at Pete, and he had grabbed his phone. Pete left us. I didn't leave you to be buried. I'm gonna win. Um, even though there are plenty of jokes within the film, I mean, it, there are comedic beats, but I would say there are more dramatic beats than comedic beats. When I watched Downhill, I went back and rewatched Force Majeure because I wanted to see how that movie ended. And I'm not going to talk about what specifically happens in the ending of your film. There's a scene in both films on a ski run, and there's a scene in your film that is new that is, I think, my favorite scene in the movie, where there's a conversation about what Will Ferrell's character can do. And it feels like a really interesting way to end the movie. I'm wondering about that scene, about its importance, and how you try to figure out how the movie should end tonally without talking about what she says to her husband. Well, I think that we wanted... Uh, we did not want the movie to end up with a n- neat little bow. We wanted to have ambiguity at the end of this film. I think it's safe to say that people m- might leave the theater thinking either this couple is going to work it out or maybe this couple... Uh, has got a real problem on their hands. And I think both truths are acceptable. (laughs) Um, It's up for interpretation. She makes uh, a decision, and I think it's a questionable decision, okay? I mean, you know, as as standing outside of it, I can understand why she did it, but I'm not sure it's exactly the right thing to do in that moment, but um, that's okay because um, I, I, they're trying to crawl their way out of this mess, and this is their kind of muddy, messy way of doing it. And you know, it's up for discussion as to whether or not it's the right uh, the right move. I really liked playing that scene because I understood why she would come to that conclusion. But it was very important to me in this in the film that we made that this character that I played was flawed. Uh, because I we didn't want it to be a movie about, you know, sort of cowardice and masculinity 
and just that. It needed to be a little more uh, balanced. And that was important to me. And, and the wife character in our film makes a couple of pretty miserable decisions, I would say. Julia, great to see you. Thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's fun to talk to you always. Julia Louis-Dreyfus co-stars in Downhill with Will Ferrell. She's also a producer on the movie. It's in theaters on Valentine's Day. Coming up on The Frame, a theater critic writes a play about the collapse of journalism. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. Theater critic Stephen Lee Morris was working at the LA Weekly when Village Voice Media bought the alternative newspaper about 15 years ago. A lot of controversy has rocked the paper since, with almost all of the paper's staff being fired two years ago. But Morris could see the writing on the wall long before that. Journalistic integrity was being abandoned for clickbait, and advertisers weren't interested in that lowest common denominator approach. In his one-act play, Red Ink, Morris tells a dark, satirical story based on real experiences working in journalism. We've changed the locations, we've changed the names, blah, 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 and some of the incidents are half-true deliberately for artistic design, but I think... The larger picture, I hope, is reflective of what's happening in the industry, what continues to be happening in the industry. There is a character in your story called Jerome, and I'm going to quote a line that Jerome says pretty early in the play, and it is, To edit a newspaper that has a purpose, a communion with its readers, smart and worldly, choosing a story from a passion to tell it, not from some speculation on what might get the most hits. And all this built on a legacy of wit and solid research— That's our model for the Herald. He believes that, doesn't he? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But there was a time that was true at the LA Weekly. I I really believe that. I was there at that time, and I think that's what made it a great paper, and I don't think that's hyperbolic or overly ideological. I I think there was a truth to that. It's not the entire truth, but it's a truth, and he has good reason to believe that. When you are thinking about what happened to you professionally and what you want to do artistically, what was the starting point? And what was the kind of creation of the story? What was that process like for you? Well, first, uh, I was obviously upset. Um, <clears throat> there's a certain amount of frustration that something you, it's like losing a child, something, it's not my child per se, it's somebody else's child, but it's a child nonetheless, and, and you see it um, being diminished. Back in 2008, I was having a play done off-Broadway, and it was on the A train, and I saw this guy, it was an almost empty train, but this guy was sitting alone, And he was um, laughing hysterically. There were bursts of saliva being sprayed onto the windows, and he was rocking back and forth. And and I thought to myself, this has got to be the former editor of an alternative weekly newspaper. (laughs) That's a dark thought. (laughs) So I thought it was a good joke in a way to start the play, but then the play got much darker as it was being written. Meaning a little bit there, but for the grace of God, go I, that you saw... Yes. Part of yourself and this person? There's always that. I, I don't think I am that editor-in-chief. I was never an editor-in-chief in a paper. But uh, yes, yes, there but for the grace of God. We're talking with Stephen Lee Morris about his play Red Ink. It's one of those things, too, that this paper is dying, 
from a thousand paper cuts. Yes. And those paper cuts reveal themselves in different ways. And one of the ways they reveal themselves is in the diminishing of journalistic standards. There yes. is a harrowing scene where a intern named Corbett comes to talk to a couple of editors. And here's what she says about a story. When did the scoop become more important than the truth? Are they ordering you to be so small, so mean, so yellow? You are a great newsman, Fred. She could have said you were. She says you are. Tell us about that incident because it's central to the story of the play. She actually follows that line. After she says, you are a great newsman, Fred, she follows with the line, what's happened to you, which is really the point. Um, I saw at the paper stuff that got added. It it is a fictional, in the play, it's a fictionalized account of something that actually happened. And I'll just relate what happened in the play, is that what was added was an accusation based on a court report that this manager had been charged for various um, sexual improprieties that were really quite vulgar. If this is true, the, the paper said, he could spend several decades in prison, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What the intern brings out, but it's one accusation, he has not yet been charged. He has certainly not been convicted. But by putting the accusation in print, he has just been convicted on the web, on various social media platforms where it will live forever. And that that's what upsets her. And that's why she says, why is the, uh, why is the scoop more important than the truth? Because his decisions are governed not by what is good journalism, but what will get clicks. Yeah. It's a titillating, exciting little thing to put in to a news story. As he points out, it's not inaccurate in that there is this accusation, but nonetheless, it's a smear. You wrote the play originally 10 years ago, and a lot has happened since then. Yes. How does that change not only what you're writing, but how it might be received? I'm a complainer by nature, and I complained over the years that this is a topical play and it needs to be done now. And yet, 10 years later, this is the cultural moment where it seems to be resonating. We had a scene, the resolution of the play that is now no longer there. I rewrote it. That was one of the last big changes I made. was a scene in which the editor, in trying to get fired because he had lost his mind, he was begging to be fired so he could collect on his severance. So he made up a story that was just outrageous and it backfired because it, the the fiction became like so popular and that they just wouldn't fire him and i thought that was amusing and i thought that was a, a way for him to step down with with this comic backdrop and then came that do you, if you recall that video that v- vulgar video with Trump as a character racing through the halls and gunning down newspaper outlets that were all labeled collectively fake news and i thought well my joke might have been amusing in 2018 and 2020. It's no longer funny. And so we changed that to a much more sobering um, conclusion with with, with uh, an incel gunman coming through the paper. Well, and it gets to the idea that we hear a lot about journalists being the enemy of the people and about what it means to live in a post-factual world. Yes. And the fact that Telling what you believe is the truth can lead to violent consequences, which was unimaginable even five years ago. Stephen Lee Morris is the playwright of Red Ink. Stephen, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you again for having me. Red Ink is at the Atwater Village Theater through February 24th. 
Coming up on The Frame, musician Andy Schaaf is one of Canada's great exports. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. Andy Schaff is a singer and songwriter from rural Saskatchewan. His songs play out like short stories about regular people. His 2016 album, The Party, is about an anxiety-ridden night of socializing, and it won Canada's Polaris Music Prize. His latest, The Neon Skyline, is a collection of stories inspired by the regulars at his neighborhood Toronto bar. Schauf records and performs every instrument on his records, which include clarinets and flutes. He walked the frame producer, Jonathan Shiflett, through his recording process. Yeah, I didn't really notice that I was, you know, the party. My last album was one night, one party. This one, I guess, is one night, one bar. It's a similar structure. Hey, I'm Andy Schaff, and my new album is called The Neon Skyline. I called up Charlie about a quarter past nine and said, what's going on tonight? Uh, the Neon Skyline is a bar in Toronto that I go to a lot. It's like right down the street from both my studio and my house. I said, come to the skyline, I'll be washing my sins away. I mean, I think I used the bar as the setting for this record just because that's where I was all the time. I don't know if there's an advantage really, but the way that you write about people when they're drinking is a little bit different than if people were super sober. I don't know. People who've been drinking are different. You know, they, yeah, like they overshare and uh, there's a lot more emotions present, I think, when you're drinking. Whether it's like you're a real happy drinker or, uh, you know, you wallow in your misery. You can do both in like five minutes. Yeah, so this song, Living Room, I put a note in my phone at some point during like writing this album that said... Someone walks up and tells a story that's just completely unrelated to what's going on. Charlie says hi and asks about her boy. She says he's fine and so So the first, like I started this song out, yeah, acoustic and vocal. Really droney, trying to be kind of just hypnotic. Oh, weird, I didn't remember playing it like that. <laughs> And then I added a piano pretty early on. The bass line was probably pretty early on. She says it's funny that you ask. Today I had a strange experience. So it, it was probably like this, like initially... Like the first demo, I think I did at my apartment before I had my studio. But it was like everything that I was doing at my apartment, I couldn't have drums in there. So all the rhythm stuff was like hand claps. 
It became like a classic demo-itis thing where I tried to re-record it a million times and just nothing worked. So coming up with drums for it was like impossible for some reason and I couldn't. Eventually I, I did this. I mean, because I record alone, vocals are kind of, they're tricky, because there's no one really there to tell you if it was a flat performance. He said go show it to your mother, dear. A little rough. <laughs> I drawn it just for him, just for him, just for him, just for him. That's very exposed. Yeah, and then there was this back and forth between five clarinet lines and five flute lines. Um, it was hard. <laughs> I can't really play the flute, but I figured it out. Clarinet I learned, I asked my mom if she would buy me one for Christmas like 10 years ago now. But, yeah, I just kind of figured it out. I have a pretty limited range on it, but I've spent a lot of time alone playing it, so it, I've gotten better at it. I w am very specific with the way that I record things, and... I'm really specific about how I want things to sound interpreted. Um, so I'm excited to see how the players in my band are going to interpret some of these things. Is it my fault that you never got home? If we'd taken the train, I guess you would have got home. I let people take small liberties. But sometimes I think, like, people in the band think that I didn't try something you know like I didn't try that avenue I did and it didn't work so that's why you're not gonna do that <laughs> I moved to Toronto about three and a half years ago um, before that I was living in Saskatchewan in a small city called Regina yeah, moving to Toronto was like, for me, it was like crazy. Regina's like 200,000 people, maybe, and, you know, you go to a bar there, you know everyone, and Toronto was very overwhelming for a lot of time for me. I've just kind of made it into a really small city for myself. Like, I live at one main intersection, and... By walking to the next one, I've passed the skyline, and I'm at my studio. Andy Schaff's latest album, The Neon Skyline, is available now, and that'll do it for today. I'm John Horn. Thanks for listening. We're back here tomorrow at the Moan Broadcast Center. I guess I didn't hear about that. 
Alleyist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events.